random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Dan DiDio, comic book aficionado, and you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And this is not a drill, ladies and gentlemen. We have someone formerly of the Distinguished Competition, a major head honcho of the Distinguished Competition, and a man who has a very big project that is coming down the pipeline, and I'm really excited for it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined with the great Dan DiDio. Dan, good evening. Good evening. Wow, Marvel thing. You know, I never got invited to anything from Marvel before, so this is kind of fun. <laughs> wow, we're the first. I like that. That's cool. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. I, you know... Joe and I knew each other. Joe Casada and I knew each other even before we before I was working at DC. I knew him back in my days at ABC. Um, so it's always kind of funny that everybody always thought this this weird rivalry going on between me and Joe. But but quite honestly, you know, we were actually good friends. Well, not to get your hopes up, Dan, but don't have any too much faith because that's about as far as it gets with the title of the pro, the podcast. We oh, we okay. did, but we okay. did have a visit in the summer of 2018. It, to the Marvel 19, Studio. Eddie. 19. 19. Oh, boy. Coming up on three <laughs> 20, years now. 20. Okay. <laughs> one and only visit. I don't know if there'll be another one, but yeah. Not with that attitude, mister. But anyway, uh, <laughs> in regards to, you know, Joe, by the way, I think it's really, it was funny. The day I saw you guys did, like, I think you did his uh, Cup of Joe uh, online stream. Did his Cup of Joe? Yeah, sure did. <laughs> and I, I'm a wrestling dork, so, like, seeing, like, you know, back in the day, like, the Undertaker and Sting. Oh my God, it's a WWE guy and a WCW guy. It was like yeah. seeing a Marvel and DC guy together. It's like, oh my God, what is going on? So, I love Lunch. seeing that. <laughs> well, you know what? Honestly, we, I, we, I played into. We both played into that really well because honestly, we always felt that the the bigger we built that competition up between Marvel and DC, the more the fans were engaged, the more people got excited about it, and the more energy it created, the more conversation. And, and honestly. Both companies win. You know, the comic book industry, at least at that time, um, would not be moving forward without this, without the success of Marvel and DC. And it had to be in tandem. One couldn't carry the whole business. You really need both of them working um, at, at full steam to really show the, the, the true scope and, and, and sensibility of the comic business. And in regards to comics, like, what was your initial start of getting in as a reader and then as a professional? You know, it, it's an interesting thing because... Um, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about these things, you know, about when, when did you first become a comic fan? And, you know, my, um, my, in my family, they, we, we were, my brother was reading Creepy, Eerie, Vampirella. My sister was buying Famous Monsters of Filmland, and I was reading that with her. And any time they would go to the store, on occasion they would pick me up a comic. Um, and probably my Holy Grail comic, the one that I still have when I first bought it, is Spider-Man 40, Spidey Saves the Day. You know, this wonderful shot of Spidey standing over a beaten Green Goblin. And um, I love Green Goblin from the Spider-Man cartoon in the 60s. So that cover just was exploded off the, off the stand. And I bought that comic and, and used to pick things up on occasion, mostly the horror stuff, House of Secrets, House of Mystery, Where Monsters Dwell, uh, Creatures on the Prowl, stuff like that. 
And I said, and the, the funny part is the monsters are what got me into the DC universe and the Marvel universe. Uh, I followed Demu the Titan into Defenders. Um, and I followed Swamp Thing into Batman in a weird way. <laughs> so, so it was, it was kind of fun. And then after that, the, as I got deeper into the superhero stuff, um, all the comic horror stuff sort of faded away. And then I just became this crazy comic guy buying 40 to 50 books a month. <laughs> so go figure. <laughs> That's a heck of an inventory. Yeah. For that, for that many, I remember my day of collecting maybe two dozen a month and that was, I don't know, mid to late 80s. So you just got a few years on me. I started probably when I was about 10 years old. Oh, listen, I could go back in time and go say, tell you that. I remember the time when they went from 20 cents to 25, and I was laying out all my books on the floor, having to make this, you know, um, you know, this, this Sophie's choice of which books were going to stay or not. If, if I was losing one book per dollar, which book was going to be? <laughs> and then, of course, I did that. Within six months, I was in the back issue bins picking up all the ones I cut. <laughs> I, I just imagine you're standing by your window, your arms behind your back, your head down, the windows, the curtains are drawing. You're just like, I don't know what to do. Do I get swampy? Do I still yeah, get swampy? It, it was, those, are, those are tough decisions, I have to say. <laughs> There's a little bit of a marked difference then between yourself and myself because I remember like coming into it at, let's say, 30 or definitely 35 cents. And saying, okay, two thirty-five to seventy, and then it's a dollar <laughs> yep. five, oh, and you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, I'm the you know, it, 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 but it, but it was fun, and you know what? And I've always enjoyed the, the the breadth of comics. You know what I mean? And not just about superhero books, but I I love the science fiction. I love the uh, the horror comics as well. You know, I picked up some of the westerns. I was a huge Jonah Hex fan. You know, so I was always picking things up, whatever intrigued me. You know, in those days, you know. You know, the cover really sold you. And if there was something really interesting on a cover, um, I always wound up buying that book. And, you know, and, and that was always good. If, you know, and that's why when you had a good villain in a book, that one, you know, you, you were laser focused on you how to get that comic. I agree with the cover. That was the big selling point for that. And for me, it was with DC. I've mentioned before with things like The Unknown Soldier and Weird War Tales. Did you go in for yeah. some of the war stuff, too? Yep. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Weird War Tales I love. Uh, Unknown Soldier, I got some of that as well, um, you know, and then, you know, you pick up a G.I. War or something like that if they did the land, uh, the war that time forgot or something along those lines. Nothing quite like a dinosaur on the cover to make you buy a book. Exactly. I'm a dinosaur <laughs> fan from the beginning. Me, love that Stegosaurus. I was going to say, what's yeah. your favorite type of dinosaur, Eddie? Steggy. Mm -hmm. Dan, what is your favorite kind of dinosaur? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of weird. I was, you know, when I was a kid, there was something interesting about Ankylosaurus to me. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then, you know what it was? Is that then I got into Stegosaurus from the King Kong movie. And then, I, you know, then all of a sudden he was like the, the guy. <laughs> so now, by the way, you mentioned the, uh, the Jonah Hex comics. I'm a big Jonah Hex fan myself. Yeah. And, like, you mentioned also the covers can draw your attention. And I absolutely adored, like, the Darwin Cook covers. Like, there is just something special about the New 52 era with those Darwin covers and just gorgeous looking stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean Jimmy Jimmy and Darwin were good friends and, and Darwin loved the character as well. So anytime they wanted to do a special issue, they always found a way to recruit Darwin. I think he did issue fifty with him or something like that. It was absolutely stunning. I mean, it was fascinating stuff. Um, you know, and uh, he had he you know, he you know, a little bit like Frank Miller, he has a way to really, you know, stage pages and, and really be able to bring that cinematic sense. Um, to to the comic book art. I mean, you look at you know just New Frontier alone; it's like a straight up masterpiece. Oh yeah! Hey, listen. The the funny story about New Frontier is, uh, well, not funny, uh, is that it was in a drawer when I first joined DC. We're sitting in a drawer and planning to be unpublished. 
Um, what happened was they had created like three or so issues of it halfway through it. And halfway through it, they went back and there was some continuity changes that were asked for from Darwin. And Darwin didn't want to destroy the integrity of his story. Um, so he wouldn't make the, the continuity changes to make it fit with what, what was happening in the DCU at the moment. So they wound up sitting in the drawers of editor Mark Chiarello at the time. And I remember when I first started, I was going, excuse this expression, guys, it's not what it sounds, but I was going through everybody's drawers. And I was literally seeing, <laughs> see, seeing what unpublished work they had because everybody had, you know, files of things that they started or didn't finish or was put aside for whatever reason. And I was trying to find things that we could be published. So I found New Frontier, and I'm like, why, why aren't we published? This is stunning. And they explained the story to me, and I went, who cares? <laughs> I just remember saying, who cares? We can make this as a standalone. You know, it's going to wind up in a book somewhere. It's going to sit on the shelf with you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years worth of other comics. Nobody's going to know the difference. Let it, let's be true to what it is and, and put it out. And, and that's how uh, New Frontier ultimately got published. Now, in relation to Darwin, by the way, there's a story uh, over the years that I've heard about, like bits and pieces. I've heard Jimmy Pamiotti kind of bring it up a little, but I've <laughs> never heard from a story, this story from one of the people involved with it, with Darwin. Okay, which one? <laughs> which one? <laughs> yeah. It involves a character who just absolutely loves honey. Uh... <laughs> Oh, no, you're not going to do the Winnie the Pooh story. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> oh, my God. That's not even a comic book story. That's a horror movie. Silly, um, silly old bear. So, speaking of which, so here we are. We're, you know, we're only a couple of days away from Megacon. And I was at Megacon, and, you know, you're at these conventions. They're exhausting, right? And I hadn't seen Jimmy for a while. He'd already moved to Florida. So, you know, I'd gone from Megacon, drove to his house, uh, you know, and uh, went to visit him. And I <laughs> I fell asleep on his couch when I first got there. And I, and this is a true story, guys. Uh, and I, I woke up with, with Darwin Cook in a Winnie the Pooh costume with his hand over my mouth saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. <laughs> well, needless to say, um, I did not take that well. <laughs> Yikes. And I, I, I had a, a violent body spasm that sent him flying across the room, screaming, get the heck off me, uh, so to speak. And I sent him flying on that one. Yes, but ever since then, yeah. And, and, and true to form, uh, after Darwin passed, he left me a, uh, a cell of a Winnie the Pooh cartoon. Oh, my gosh. As, 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 uh, as one of his momentum. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, because every time I see, you know, every time I uh, see Darwin's art, there is a small part of me where I just go, <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, you wouldn't be laughing if he was on top of you, buddy. Fair. That's very fair. That's very fair. Yeah. I probably understand he did the same to Phil Noto, but Phil was not as lucky as getting him off as I was. <laughs> so to speak. What a turn this has taken. Okay. Yeah, I don't know where this See, is going, guys. Mm, well, is this what you Marvel guys talk about all day? No, no, well, thank goodness. Well Winnie, well, Winnie the Pooh is technically a part of the Disney family, and it's more part of Marvel. Fair, so. I'm surprised he's not an Avenger by now. <laughs> you know, there could be somewhere down the line on a what yep. if story. <laughs> the, the That's th it. The Thousand Acre Defenders. <laughs> yeah, 
sure. Why not? Hey, I like that. That's very good. Christopher Robin will take another. Yeah. Okay. Or is it the Hundred Acre Woods? Which one is it? Uh, it's got to be a hundred at least. Yeah, so the hundred acres. Fine. We'll make them the uh, the hundred. Uh, it's ten times as fill in the blank. Whatever. The Hundred Acre Adventures. Yeah. Give them that title at least. Cool. No, they they got Eeyore. Eeyore is the uh, Hulk of the group. <laughs> Well, I think we skipped the part, Dan, where you actually got into the comic uh, field, per se. And I think you're on your, what, 20, is it 20th anniversary now? Uh, we just crossed over 20 years, yeah. But, yeah, 20 years. I started in January, uh, you know, 2002. Um, but, I actually, I was co-writing Superboy for about six months prior to that. Um, so, I was actually working with DC um, on Superboy with Jimmy. And then, through a weird circumstance, um, a mutual friend introduced me to Paul set me up for an interview, then six interviews later, I wound up in a rather ambiguous job uh, called Vice President of Editorial at DC, and then, then we're off to the races. Well, congratulations. Happy anniversary, whatever comes first. Yeah, uh, and yeah then, I guess so. And then somewhere along the line, uh, DC Nation. How about that? Oh, well, DC Nation was something that I always had in mind. It was That was my way to combat Marvel. Um, and this was an interesting thing, because when I first got to DC... I was basically going to the publisher at the time, Paul Levitz. I said, DC needs a voice, a personality. And up to that point, uh, they shied away from the shied away from really putting a personality in front or a voice in front of the product. And I mean, Jeanette had done it when she first started the company, but that was back in the 70s. Victor Jana was much more low-key, um, and he kept a, a more quieter voice. And, and Carlin stayed really more associated with Superman than the overall line when he was there. Uh, but I really thought that we needed to be out there speaking to the fans on a regular basis. And um, I absolutely adore fan engagement. I really do. I, I just think it's a lot of fun. I mean, you can go online and hear what people on say line, but that almost feels curated to me. It's a very distinct group with a very distinct point of view. Um, and I, I like to hear from the people who don't normally speak up, and you got to go and find them. And I used to like going to conventions or just talking directly to them just to get that conversation going. So ultimately, I wanted to create something for there. And... They, they had a couple of attempts at this over the years. They had the, the Daily Planet page, and um, they had the Meanwhile page, I think it was called. And none of those really had a sense of fun uh, or um, even like a, a playfulness about them. And I, I thought DC Nation could be it. So ultimately, I had to basically be at DC for a while, sort of earn my stripes a little bit before they let me loose. And then I was like a little bit of a dog on a leash as soon as they let me off. DC Nation was created, and we had a lot of fun engaging the fans and chatting with the fans and creating a, a you know, conversational page every week uh, in the back of the books because I felt we wanted to keep on changing our voice at the speed that people bought the comics. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Then DC Nation became part of the convention presence, and there was a great cross-promotion between the two. And honestly, um, I would have kept it going if it wasn't co-opted by uh, Warner Animation. Um, we had created an interesting, quote-unquote, brand in DC Nation, and they wound up bringing that to animation. And ironically, when they brought it to animation, we weren't allowed to use it anymore in our books. <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, on a side note, when I saw DC Nation, I thought of something that may, I'm not sure if it's still happening under a different guise or in another respect, uh, Comic Shop News, I was thinking of, but I guess that implied that it had everybody all the comics companies that were coming out with something, I think it was maybe a, it was a folded. I remember mini, the magazine one. Mini newspaper thing, that. like eight pages and a whole wow. bunch of what was coming out for the month. Yeah, yeah, that was actually published by one of the uh, retailers, <clears throat> and he made that available to everyone. And uh, and they, you know, the comic shops purchased them, 
But it was a, a fun little giveaway, a bag stuff, what we call them. Something to stick in the bag that when you get your books, you got to find something else you can read to get people cross-promoting. I mean, yep. you know, the comics sort of lost a lot of energy, you know, for whether you liked it or not. Um, Wizard Magazine served a very distinctive purpose. Um, it created a, a pre-buzz on a lot of books and a lot of excitement about books before they came out. And, uh, and I think that was valuable. And then plus they, created, they were out there creating stars with the, the various talent, you know, with their best 10 list and things of that nature. But, and there was a lot of fun being had there, too. And it really brought that collector's community together. So when Wizard came apart and everything shifted to online, again, it diffused that audience. So everybody sort of went in their corners rather than finding a single rally spot for, um, for finding out all information about comics. And it's funny because uh, I remember, like, I just tracked it down recently, got my hands on a copy of uh, the one, and, it, you know, it's tied into uh, your upcoming project, but I remember grabbing uh, the one for the Dark Knight Strikes Again issue involving with uh, Wizard, and it was like, yeah. the hype up beforehand, and I'm like, I, I got it specifically because I love any opportunity to see some of Frank's behind-the-scenes stuff just on the way to making something. And uh, oh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating process. I mean, he's an incredibly fast artist, and, you know, he's always doing layouts. And he doesn't do scripts. He actually lays out the book and then dialogues on the page. It's a really interesting process because he, he writes as an artist more than as a writer. And again, there's just something about, you know, his, his return to uh, The Dark Knight Returns with Strikes Again that funniest thing was that was actually the first thing I read before Dark Knight Returns. So I had like a bit of a skewed kind of uh, feel to everything. But I love Dark Knight Strikes Again, and I still do. It's it's like a it's such a unique book to see in regards to the whole Batman mythos and just Frank Miller being the kick-ass cartoonist that he is with that. The you know the fluidity oh. of it all. Yeah, I mean that was the first. Actually, I was just doing the job. Um, and he was turning in, I think, the third issue. I'm, I think it's the third issue of uh, Dark Knight Strikes Again. And uh, he works on oversized boards. He works on larger than uh, art boards and about twice up than what everybody else works on. And, you know, at that moment, it was a really visceral moment for him because it was post 9 11. Uh, New York was still on edge. Um, we're talking, you know, first half of 2002. And, uh, and I remember him bringing in some pages, and I was in Bob Shrek's office, who was the editor of that book. And Bob wanted to introduce me to uh, Frank first time I met him. And um, Frank pulls out, he has this big portfolio, and these big boards comes out. And he's there telling the story about how he drew with nails, with actual physical nails, um, dipped them in ink to create this harsh, slashing looks on these pages to get the level of ang visceral anger that he was feeling on the page. And it was, it, was, it was fascinating to hear, fascinating to see, and just that level of intensity and passion. You know, you knew this was somebody who, who ultimately put everything he had into his work. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows, one, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, 
You haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. And, you know, one of my favorite things is the uh, when DC was putting them out for Batman-related titles, like collections of them, I love the uh, noir collections. I think, like, whoever was the one responsible for that, they did a phenomenal job with that because you're seeing all these different stories in a brand-new way with the black-and-white element. And being able to read Dark Knight uh, Strikes Again in black-and-white is a completely different experience than when you would have been reading in a paperback or in individual issues. Yeah, I'm thinking that if I'm thinking correctly, remember correctly now. <clears throat> it's amazing now how how fuzzy everything gets, and my memory's not the greatest. Um, but the noir connections, I believe, the ones that we did while I was there, we actually imported that concept in from Europe. That was actually a European model done by our French publisher, and we saw the black and whites and how beautiful they were able to reproduce them, and we brought that sensibility and that production style over to the U.S. to do the noir books. Um, which was really wonderful. I mean, we had been doing Batman Black and White. That was started by Archie Goodwin. It was picked up by Mark Chiarella, and it became one of his signature books. Um, but, yeah, that black and, uh, the Black and White, I think, if done correctly, uh, is, is so powerful, especially when you look at these washes and different types of tones that they're able, gray tones that they're able to bring into the art. Um, it's not just Black and White, but it's, 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 it's very evocative and very emotional in the style that they, that they work in, you know? I feel like when you look at the uh, Batman Noir, Dark Knight Returns, or Dark Knight Strikes Again, it's post-Sin City Frank Miller, and I feel like yeah. that's the closest thing to a Sin City Batman that he ever did. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we had talked about doing a Marv-Batman crossover once, but at that point we weren't going to do any R-rated Batman material, and there was no way to do Sin City without, without putting an R on a book, so to speak. That would have been amazing to see, though, especially, yeah. again, just the use of, you know, the black and white, but as well as, you know, the uses of the color red in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> well, for me, thinking of Frank Miller and my first introduction to his work, which would have been in the 80s with Daredevil and right. then with Ronan over on DC, I just recently found a uh, repurchased because I had some damaged comics from about 10 or so years ago. Uh, but I had re-gotten the, the six issues of Ronin, side note. Repurchased, Eddie, repurchased. That I've gotten. <laughs> replacement, whatever, you know, second replacement copy. Replacement copy. Replacement copy. That's, that's what I knew. I like that. Exactly. I kind of find it hard to put Frank Miller and Cartoonist together like Peter did a little while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, it, it, there is a style. And there's, I mean, people use the word cartoonist a lot when they talk about somebody doing writing and artwork. You know, the writer-artist combination because that is cartooning in its own way. Um, but you're right, it's, it's not exactly the same thing. No, exactly. But backing up a little further, to your credit, from what I see here, Wizard Magazine recognizes you as the first, their first man of the year in 2003, so kudos to that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was downhill after that. Yeah. <laughs> but do you take stock, Dan, in, in um, I guess, assorted, maybe it's just out there all over the place, that some first appearances are from Wizard, so those are valuable that's now. That's so weird. I, you know, I don't know if that's... Yeah, I don't... I, I, I don't it's, it's hard for me to say that. You know, what is a first appearance? You know, is Wolverine's first appearance in 180 or 181? You tell me. Um, oh, it's 180. You know, I, he's I, on that final page of 180, but everybody seems to identify 181 as his first appearance. My, my idea of a first appearance is when that character makes an impact visually, um, not when he's in the background of something. 
mm-hmm. or just as a you know a, or a sketch, you know, and uh, and you know, and, and first appearances only matter if the character matters. So it's it's the first appearance is a starting point, but it, it you know it, it's hard to say what could be deemed the best first appearance because um, mine is once the first time. People notice the character. I think that's a first appearance. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I I can go so far as to say, all right, Marvel Age had perhaps some of that stuff too going on. But I, I get into an argument when if anybody now brings up to me a first appearance of the Jack of Hearts, and it's the mm-hmm. very last panel silhouette of was it Master of Kung Fu twenty one? I'm like, yeah, no, it's it's I, you know. <laughs> Master of Kung Fu twenty one, really. Yeah, I had Jack to try and find that for a friend, and I wasn't going to, you know, and it was in a bad, it was bad shape, but it, it was like, you know, you want the next one where he's really in it. My yeah, yeah, thing. agreed. My favorite thing now is Eddie's frustration involving Jack of Hearts. Did not yeah. think that'd be a the, thing. No, upcoming, no, in, uh, in the current She-Hulk comic book and perhaps in the forthcoming She-Hulk show. Yeah, I'm, who thought we'd be talking about Jack of House 40 years after he was introduced? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> Now let's talk about everyone's favorite Marvel character. Oh, I don't know, uh, Stiltman. No, um, that's Peter's favorite. Well, no, Lady Stiltman. Uh, most recurring. I'm I'm a Lady Stiltman kind of person. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, you you lose me on that one. <laughs> I, 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 I probably didn't read that. Episode. You know what, Dan? Dan, you're better off believing, and you can pity me at the same time. Okay. But one thing in regards to the work of Frank, you know, that really gets me is his work on Ronan. Just amazing visceral kind of stuff and right when i saw the announcement about uh frank miller presents how ronan is going to be getting a sequel in there yeah a lot of us were just like wait but then we all remember oh yeah it is creator owned well it is and it isn't i mean it's creator owned in in a way that was different from what the books were at the time it was created. They, you got to rem- the most interesting thing about Ronan, it was a groundbreaking in the sense that this was the first time anybody did anything deemed to be considered creator owned within the body of one of the major companies. Um, so it, 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 it was really a better equity agreement than it is a clear creator ownership, as you see later on with other books. Um, but the good part for Frank and the good part with this, he's had a good, a long, healthy, successful relationship with DC. And when he wanted to go out and do a sequel, he really wanted to do it on his own, in his, with his own company. Uh, this was an important step for him. Um, so he was able to negotiate those rights back from DC. Uh, and it's shared in some places, but the great part about it is that he's really able to execute a vision for that independent of anybody at DC, which I think is is um, a testament to his strength of the industry that he was able to pry that loose. Dan, what, if anything, can you tell us further about now this newly announced Frank Miller Presents? Well, I mean, there's a lot I could tell you. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that it's not just Frank Miller in name alone. He is hands-on on, the, on all the books that we're creating at this moment. Um, the sequel to Ronin is his story, the story he wanted to tell since the end of the first Ronin series. He had the story in mind. Uh, so he wanted to do it, and but he, he he honestly didn't want to draw it, which was intriguing to me. Um, so what he's done is that we've hired uh, Philip Tan uh, to do the art on the book, and it's absolutely spectacular. Uh, Frank's doing full layouts of the series, and, and Philip is working for Frank's layouts. The entire book is done in double-page spreads, so the entire series is a two-page layout. It might have multiple panels, but it's a double-page spread, uh, which is heck of a, a beast when you're when you're book mapping a series, trying to figure out how the pages go. Um, but the page, we, we've got the first issue done already. Um, Frank just laid out a, a 
and Philip just finished um, a 10-page recap of the original series, so that'll be included in the first issue. Um, and it's a six-part miniseries that we'll be putting out um, starting in November, um, and uh, we're super excited by it. But that's the first book that we're doing there. Um, Frank is also doing new Sin City material. Um, and again, he's revisiting Sin City, but he didn't want to be the artist on it. So he's the writer, and he's laying out, doing loose layouts, not as tight as he did for Philip. But Frank's working with actually Mila Manera on doing a Sin City story. And Frank's super excited because this is the first time he's allowing another artist to tell a story in the Sin City world because that's his baby. He protects that intensely, um, and he's actually letting another artist, and only because he has such high respect for Milo, and Milo's a, a brilliant artist, such a brilliant artist, that uh, it's going to bring a different type of look and style to Sin City, and he's doing, they're doing that as a one-shot. Um, and then Frank's writing and drawing the origin of Sin City, called, a series called 1858, which is basically a Western, uh, where the, the, the Basin City is, is actually built from the ground up, and, and a lot of the uh, lineages of the characters that exist in the Sin City series, you'll see, uh, you'll see their, um, you know, their uh, ancestors um, in that book. So there's a lot of fun stuff there. Has he ever done a Western before? Because that's kind of something I've always wanted to see but didn't know if it existed. I, I, in his mind, every book he does is a Western. Yeah. Uh, he just doesn't set it in the West. Uh, you know, I mean, it's sometimes when he's drawing, he has Westerns playing in the background because I think that's, that's a source of inspiration for him. Uh, but uh, this is the first time he's doing a Western, so it's kind of fun, and he's super excited. He's got horses all over the place because he wants to draw horses, right? <laughs> Who doesn't? I... <laughs> it's, uh, supposedly it's a bitch to draw. I can't even draw a straight line. No, so start with I'm a stick figure a horse and go from there. <laughs> start with a stick figure horse, go from there, play a little hangman, you know? Yep, Exactly. Exactly. Well, with respect yeah, we to... Have, we have two other series. Uh, Frank uh, created the initial conceit for a book uh, called Pandora, uh, which is a young adult um, fantasy science fiction series that uh, he created the conceit. We have two new writers coming on board, uh, Chris Silvestri, No Relation, and, uh, and Anthony uh, Marinville, um, the other writers that are coming over from animation to, uh, to help execute his vision on that. But the, but, the, but the big star of this book is Emma Kubert, uh, third-generation Kubert coming on board to... Uh, she did the designs, and she'll be doing all the storytelling. Wow. Emma's phenomenal. I love her work over on uh, Image on Inkblot. Just a yeah, gorgeous-looking yeah. book. Yep. So. And then uh, the last book uh, is a book that I, I actually, I'm actually i writing, um, which is called Ancient Enemies. Uh, it's basically our superhero book. Uh, it has a lot of different characters and ideas and concepts in there. I have this uh, brilliant Brazilian artist by the name of uh, Danilo Beirut, uh, right, doing the artwork, some of the stunning stuff he's created. Uh, great visualizations, great storytelling, and uh, and Frank created an original character as part of that story. Um, it's a character called the Geek, and that'll be taking part of this overarching story. And we talked about New Frontier earlier. Um, Ancient Enemies is really laid out much like New Frontier. It's it's a big, long, arcing story, um, and characters move in and out to tell the story. And we're introducing five or six new concepts in the in the body of that of that book, and and hopefully it connects. And that's our kickoff. Uh, um, which will be our first four titles. We don't want to go big. Uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we might double the amount of books, but we'll never go more than that um, because we want to keep it very succinct. Um, and I, I said this to someone else, and I'll say it here again. Um, when I did New Age, when we did New Age of Heroes at DC, part of my belief is that we had gone away from letting the artist tell the story the way he wants to see it, and I felt books were being overwritten. So we gave the artist a lot of latitude, at least at the start, to really be able to 
explore the storytelling and the visualization of the comic and, and make them visually exciting again. And um, I, I'm happy to say that what we're doing with the Frank Miller Presents line is exactly that. These are really, these are artist showcase. And each one of the artists is really having, getting a chance to shine, um, which is, I think, what's absolutely necessary in comics today. I feel like the coolest thing, though, as a writer that you get to experience now is Frank Miller is trusting you to give a voice to a character he created originally and just gave the character to you to build. I think that's such a yeah. cool thing. Well, he, 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 gave me the, he gave me the backstory. And it, uh, it's, the funny thing about with Frank is that the more he does something, the more he falls in love with it. Um, so, you know, he he's did the designs. He's giving all the art direction. He laid the backgrounds. We actually had the character interpreted in, in a lineup with all the other characters as part of a promotional piece. And he calls me up. He goes, he goes the size is wrong. This is wrong. And he was, he was all over it. And I said, this is just an interpretation <laughs> for promotion. And he sort of backed up. But he, he's going to be watching this. He's my editor on this book. So, uh, so it's, it's kind of intriguing because we, we kind of switched roles. Um, but that's, that's, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Um, you know, and for me, you know, the fun part of do about doing anything, the only reason why to come back and do more comics, especially after 20 years, because uh, I was fried at the end of DC, I, I, I was fried, and uh, is that it, it's exciting and it's learning, and I feel like even at a, an advanced age that I'm at, I'm still learning about the business and I'm still learning storytelling, and that's intriguing to me. There's, there's, if you're just repeating yourself or just revisiting things you've already done, um, it's not fun. But that's what's fun about this, and I think that's Frank, Frank's logic too. That's why he's approaching Bronin. And Cincinnati, the way he is, but going to the new area, which is 1858, um, and then ha- working on the other projects, too. So with respect, then, to the sequel to Ronan, we're going to have some, I guess, I would assume, somewhat similarities and perhaps something that's not quite the same as the story we knew from the 80s. If you... Oh, no, it picks, up right, right, it picks up right at the end. Starts right fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a di- it's, it's a direct sequel, and... Uh, it, it, it follows the characters that were left at the end of that series moving forward um, as they're searching for the new Ronan, which is, which is a lot of fun. Are we looking at maybe, if, we're, if I remember Ronan correctly from then, not too, too much dialogue and more pictures, you know? It's more, these, are, these, are, these, are, these are stunning spreads that, that Philip's creating. I mean, this is probably the... I've, I've known Philip a, a long time. Philip and I worked together on so many projects over the years. He was, he was my artist on... He, he was a... Primarily my artist on Outsiders, when I was writing Outsiders. Uh, we did an Eclipso special together. Uh, he really came on big with me on, um, on, uh, on uh, what should we call it, on, on Phantom Stranger. Uh, and uh, he also, we also did a couple of other sh- one-shots together over the years. Um, I consider him a, a good friend um, and an incredible talent. And I, but honestly, this is a, a chance for Philip really to shine and really to be elevated as, a, as one of the superstar artists in the business. And then with uh, the upcoming Megacon that you mentioned uh, in Orlando, is that your return to the con scene, and what other places will we be uh, looking forward to seeing you? Well, we'll be, we'll be in Orlando. I'll be with Frank in Boston and New York, and then we're looking at other shows right now. We're still determining whether we're going to be in San Diego or not. Um, I feel weird being out there too much before the books are out, um, but uh, we're going to put out an ash can because um, we're really focused on print publishing in a, in a, in a really big way. Uh, Frank loves print publishing. He's reviewing all the paper stocks with me, uh, as crazy as it sounds. Um, we're going through different types of paper stocks. He, he loves the presentation as much as the, uh, as the creation. 
And uh, we're going to do an Ashcan, uh, which we hope to have out in July, in, not July, in August. Uh, and then first book's out the door in, uh, in November. So uh, uh, I feel that uh, we're on track for those schedules. But, um, but already I can feel the pressure of getting this stuff done. Oh, I haven't sure. felt this pressure for about two years, so it's part- kind of interesting. Stock up on the uh, ibuprofen. Now, uh, now yeah, Dan, yeah. <laughs> you did mention that you're doing all these different cons throughout the country, one of which is going to be taking place from July 29th through July 31st. Yes, we are, of course, talking about Terrificon at the Mohegan Sun Casino and Resort in lovely Uncasville, Connecticut. Terrificon, Connecticut's only Terrific Comic Con. Yeah! Wow, was are they a sponsor of this show? <laughs> no, but we love Mitch. We love Mitch. Howard. Oh, you know what? Honestly, the first time I've ever done the show, I've watched all my friends go to this over the years. So when I got the invitation this year, I said, "You know what? Let's let's go for it a little bit." It was it was a part of my convention list at DC, uh, but since I, I'm not being guided by that list anymore, it's kind of fun to be picking and choosing different shows. Um, and uh, I, I moved back to the East Coast, so and I, I, I love being back on the east coast and i love being at shows on the east coast so there's a there's a there's a real entrenched uh history of comics here um and and hardcore fans and uh, nothing better than, than than meeting and mixing up with hardcore, hardcore comic fans and we both will definitely be there at Terrificon, oh, yeah, connecticut or, yeah Eddie, I'm, I, I'm looking forward to this we're, we're gonna have some fun Eddie, uh, i'm gonna be i'm gonna i'm gonna, probably gonna do the uh the Frank Miller presents presentation there as well. I'm going to do a panel there, but I'll have a table there too. And I'm, I'm not good at tables. I don't like sitting down. Um, I feel very uncomfortable for a long period of time sitting there. Sure. Uh, but uh, I, I do love I, lo- I do love walking around and and just taking in the experience of the show. I forgot to ask Eddie, are you going to be at Terrificon? Because I didn't want to jump the gun and say Eddie's going to be there. I'm good. Yes, I'm going to be oh. there, but not at a table either. So, or you know, good. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> well, we, if I, I can count on two people at least to be at one of my panels, then I'm, I've already doubled up the, the amount of people I was expecting. <laughs> do, you, do you know what day the panel will be on? No, not yet. I haven't got that schedule yet. We're still trying to figure out flights. <laughs> if it's a Saturday or a Sunday, congratulations. you got one more person because I'm going to schnooker my girlfriend into coming along with us. <laughs> okay, we'll make sure we... Make sure we could do something to embarrass her, right? Yes, absolutely. No. <laughs> I'll be standing at a distance. She's uh, got to deal with me for a week in Disney World. Believe me, I don't need any more torture for this poor woman. She'll she'll be fine. She's a Disney, you know, aficionado. And there you go. I heard that word we love, all, we love aficionados, don't we? That we and you know <laughs> what I had another. That's what we pronounce it right. <laughs> and, yeah, and another a word that I hadn't heard in a while. And I'm sc- sorry if I'm being naive, or whatever. But I, ash, alabaster, ash can. I haven't heard or known. I, you know, I I got those just happenstance along the way. I thought those were maybe a '90s, early 2000s thing. That's still yeah. still happening. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm I'm gonna do something even weirder. We're gonna do something even weirder. We're doing uh, fold out. <laughs> not only we're we doing ash cans. We're doing unsaturated colors in the comics so they don't look like uh, somebody pukes Skittles on the books anymore. Oh. Um, we want to go out there and, and really go out there and let the art breathe and, and stand out on a page, um, which I feel some of these books are getting so, and to, use the, you know, to use a production term, oversaturated in color, yeah. um, that I feel that the art is getting smothered, and I think you're losing so many of the fine lines. We have so many great artists working on these books, the last thing I want to do is lose their line work um, because they put so much effort into these books. You want to make sure you see it all. So, you know, we want to, we want to go back and, and make these books feel um, like comics again. I mean, the other thing we're not doing is a ton of varying covers. Hard to believe. Um, mm. We're going to roll the dice and hope that people actually want to read them uh, instead of just buy it for a cover. So uh, that's a lot of fun there because it puts the, the onus back on us again to make these books 
um, not just enjoyable to, to go through on the interiors, uh, but also be compelling enough that you want to come back for the next issue. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And then you can... And, and, and not worrying about selling because it's a, 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 a falsely created collectible. Right. You know? And then, you know, it does well as it comes out in November again and or what's coming forward. And then you can go back and say, you know what, let's do a cover gallery kind of thing. That'll be its own thing. Yeah, we, we could. We could say that. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, I have this, I, we, I have FOF, which is called Friends of Frank. Um, always looking to help out. And, you know, Frank has a lot of artists that he enjoys working with and, and developed a rapport over his 40, 50 years of, in the business. Um, so because of that, we're always looking um, for folks to help out along the lines. But we really want to stand on our own two feet. At, the fir- at first, we want to make these things work because people want to read them and buy them. Um, and um, and from that point, we can move forward. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I want to keep a small line, uh, because we want to keep it as, the quality as high as possible. You know, back in my days at D.C., you know, I went back and I checked, and there were points in some months uh, we were putting out over between collections and periodicals, and just on one cover alone, about 120 items per month. Um, you know, and, and when you look at the amount of product out and the amount of books out there, you have to wonder whether or not there's enough quality of talent to be able to support that. And for us, we want to be able to make sure that we don't um, diminish the value of our books by overproducing. I just had a stray thought, and that correlates to to uh, having taken a, a movie class in high school. And apparently out of every ten movies made, seven don't do well. Two break even, and one is a blockbuster. I don't know how that translates into comics, but there we go. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, comics. The good part about comics is that it, they used to we used to use they used to use the expression either right or wrong, low cost R and D. You know, that's a way to justify a poor selling book. Um, and the fact that we just talked about Jack of Hearts shows me that that's low cost R and D. Um, you don't know when it might become valuable, but it was developed at a point of time and it didn't make money, but there was still value created in the product that maybe somewhere it might be able to capitalize on it. And uh, you know, but for us, it's not about that. It's about doing things that we believe um, work best in comics. You know, Frank likes to talk about craft. That's his, his favorite topic, our favorite topic, craft, about construction of story, construction of page, um, how a, a page is laid out, how a story develops, how it moves, the expectations of what you get from a character and, and from the story itself. And um, it's important for us to deliver on that expectation, not to move fast, just to get it out the door because we have a deadline, but to make sure that each book is its own strong reading experience and has its value unto itself, regardless of its resale value. And if you're just joining the podcast now, where have you been? How dare you? And we're not talking about mac and cheese. And how do you get into a No, no. If we're talking mac and cheese, then we're talking about adding lobster. <laughs> or... <laughs> there you go. All right. Or something else. I think yeah. uh, speaking for both of us, uh, if I am to be so bold, we, we congratulate you, Dan, for doing that, doing what you're doing, doing what you love, getting back into it, and for this amount of time. And uh, we're giving you four thumbs up for going oh, to uh, Terrificon. Thank you. I usually get two fingers up. No, but, we're doing uh, we're but doing I'll take it. The thumbs. That's actually a big improvement. It's like a double Fonzie, you know. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of good. And, you know, myself, I'm a big fan because of the New 52. Honestly, New 52 is what brought me back into comics, and I thank you so much for bringing me back in in the year of our Lord, 2011. So thank you again. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. We always talk about New 52, and 
you know, people love to talk about New 52, and for some reason they focus on Superman's underwear as being the, uh, as the focal point, which is, you know, kind of funny. Uh, for me, I always focus on the fact that the year prior to that was one of the worst years in comic book sales in the direct market. Um, the industry itself uh, was suffering the top-selling book of the entire market at that time per month was selling somewhere around sixty to 70,000 copies, and that's it. Um, no books were breaking 100 for a couple of months. We felt the industry was fading, um, you know, and ultimately it needed a, a shot of adrenaline. And as I like to tell people, I said, there was a moment there, Jim and I had just stepped into the, uh, to the co-publisher role at the time, and I looked at him and said, I'm not coming here to be co-publisher, the guy that shuts down the business. Uh, we got to do something that, 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 that works. And it's funny because 252 was an idea that had its origins 10 years earlier about when I first got to D.C. Um, when I first got to D.C., Marvel was, was cleaning D.C.'s clock pretty good. That's one of the reasons why um, they brought me in, you know, to shake things up. And um, one of the things I was focused on was Ultimates Line. And just the scope of the Ultimates Line was small, very distinct, very laser-focused, and it really found a way to reinvigorate characters that were 40, 50 years old. And I, I looked at that and saying, you know, DC need to do something like that. And, uh, and so I had tried a couple of times to, uh, to get that going. And uh, the All-Star line of comics was that. Um, we, did All-Star, we did All-Star comics, you know, All-Star Superman, All-Star Batman and Robin. Um, in some ways, Justice by Alex Ross was an All-Star comic. Um, we did those because I wanted something would be deemed a definitive collection that people could point to and say, I want to learn about a character. Where do I go? And I needed, I didn't have a Superman book I could point to. So Grant did all-star Superman to do that. But that was my first pass to doing that unencumbered, uncluttered continuity versions of our characters. And then we did later on, we did the earth one line again, trying to do the same thing, going straight to the book market with it. And that's why it was done as graphic novels, not as uh, periodical. Um, and Final Crisis was supposed to be the relaunch of the line to do that, to create that Ultimate line. And for whatever machinations occurred at the time, it was cut off in its prime, and it, it never happened. But we had, I had eight books lined up that were just all-star talent, and unfortunately it, it collapsed, um, not under its own fault, but, but other, other things taking place at the time. Um, so I, it was always in my mind to do this. So then when I got, we got new management and we saw a weak market, we were going to do it with a couple of characters, but then we got the, the, the call to be bold and to take the biggest risk possible, and there was no greater risk. And I remember sitting in a room with a bunch of people, and we're talking all the way through, and I said, how can we convince people we're serious about this? And that's when one of the, one of the folks in the room spoke up and says, start Action and Detective with number one. Nobody had ever relaunched Action and Detective, even considered to, to relaunch Action and Detective, and we thought... By doing an action in Detective Number One showed that we were serious, and when that decision was made, then we knew we were fully committed to what we were trying to accomplish. So every ounce of energy and effort for the entire company went into making New Fifty Two the most successful launches possible. And you know, uh, before we wrap this episode up, I want to ask because you had mentioned uh, the All Star line. And one of the books that was a major part of the All-Star line was the All-Star Batman and Robin that had yep. never gotten to finished. It's a finish. Right. And, you know, before you had left D.C., was there any plans to finish what Frank had started? 
Uh, yeah, there was. Um, I think I could say this for the first time. I have scripts 11 and 12. Uh, we just never got to them. Wow. Uh, because we moved, we moved somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, because um, there was so much else going on at the time. Mm. But, yeah, we, 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 we considered it. We wanted to do it. I mean, Frank actually came in last minute because there was a change in talent and teams on that book. Um, and Frank was a late addition to that. So when he went at it, he went at it in a very visceral manner, you know, uh, and it was, it, it was, it caught a lot of people off guard and, you know, you could, there, there's a lot of discussion around those books. Um, but you know, I, all I remember is, you know, Batman taking the piss out of Green Lantern by drinking lemonade. Um, and, and you know what? I could say, I remember that more than I remember a lot of other things that were published. <laughs> 100%. Dan, thank you once again for the opportunity to speak with us, and best of luck in everything going forward with Frank Miller Presents. My pleasure, guys. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Thanks again for the invite. How can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, I don't know. I'm not really a <laughs> social media guy. Uh, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm on Instagram, and actually we'll be starting up, uh, once we get a little closer to our launch, we're going to be starting up uh, Frank Miller pages on Instagram, Facebook, and a couple of the other platforms as well. So once we're out there, uh, hopefully we'll be able to create that level of engagement uh, with the fans. Um, I want to make sure they have something to see first before we start talking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I feel very strong about the fact that um, I'd rather have a conversation about something you read rather than the supposition of what it might be. Um, mm. So um, once, once the books are out there in hand, then um, we're, we'll be happy to start getting out there and engaging people and talking to them and seeing how they're reacting and see what they like and don't like and hopefully uh, create that level of dialogue that um, not just gets fans excited about the material but helps inform us about whether or not we're right, making the right choices going forward. Dan DiDio, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Dan, again. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for the invite. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Dan DiDio. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. <laughs>